I told you I started my life journey kind of thinking about how I could make a direct impact on the world. Now, of course, back then I thought it was going to be about stopping terrorism from VC. You know, you're right. It's not just that that initial investment that we make as Foxmont, but it is what happens subsequently as well, right? You know, them, these founders, having their business validated, you know, doubling down on the country, putting more money in, putting more resources, hiring more people. Right, raising more capital that then subsequently goes back into the Philippines. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Franco Varana is a managing partner of Foxmont Capital Partners, the Philippines' only independent VC firm. They recently announced a close of Fund 2 at $21 million, which will invest in early-stage, Philippine-focused startups. To date, Foxmont has invested in over 30 portfolio companies, spanning media, logistics, e-commerce, fintech, and D2C. Hey, Franco. So nice to speak with you again today. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. Very, uh, very excited to be here and, and have a conversation with you. It's fun to have this time to get to speak with you because I feel like over the course of the times we've met, I haven't really gotten to dive deep into your background, what you've been doing and all these other things. And I feel like it's now my opportunity to get to know you a lot better and for everybody else to hear more about the work you've been doing. Cool. I mean, I think, I mean, just as a note to that, a lot of that is because whatever you say to me is so much more interesting than what I can say to you, Amanda. But yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about my own journey and my own business. Well, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, but I think to start, the thing I really want to hear about is like your childhood. I feel like that is something that isn't actually seen as much when you know people talk about you, you actually grew up in Canada as a Filipino Canadian. So, what was your life like in Canada? What was your childhood like? I did. You're right. A lot of people don't really ask about that part of my life. That's interesting. Good point to mention. Yeah. So, I was born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, to first generation immigrants. Basically, my dad moved there when he was in his mid twenties, and my mom followed when she was kind of a little bit later, like like I would say two or three years later. And this is basically the mid to late 70s, right? So effectively, they were amongst the first Filipinos to actually move to Vancouver, Canada. Back then, if you think about Vancouver, it was really a small city. I mean, we're not we're talking not more than 2 million people, probably maybe even a million people there. So, so you can imagine what the population then of, of Filipinos would be at that point. I was born in 1980. And I think it's interesting to note that I was born at a pretty interesting time in my parents' life, specifically my dad's. My dad's dad, his father, actually passed away when my dad was like in his early 20s. My dad comes from a family of, I think it's, I would say it's nine siblings, three older sisters, and six boys, basically. And he was the first, well, he was a twin. So they were the first two boys born. I think what, what really, became of that was that my dad grew up basically having to be one of the main breadwinners of the family, right? Very early, if you think about it, probably in his 22, 23, he was probably like 23 years old 
the girls were his older sisters were out kind of you know building their own lives in different parts of the world some in new york some in switzerland one in vancouver almost immediately my dad had to take on this this kind of mantle of responsibility um, very soon after he graduated college and i think that defined his life and and what he wound up doing and and actually subsequently defined my life right my dad turned out to be a very kind of conservative guy he liked to have that you know stable paycheck he liked to sure he could that he could see the future that he understood that if he worked hard today that at the end of the month that he would still have a, a you know a very good salary waiting for so he actually wound up working for a bank first here in the philippines and and then eventually an international bank chase and then was recruited and this is an interesting part of philippine history that, that a lot of people probably don't know but in the 80s and 90s there were actually a lot of filipinos that were recruited for indonesian conglomerates there's a whole generation of like second generation filipinos that actually grew up in jakarta in my case it was actually growing up in vancouver but because my dad worked for an indonesian company okay wow so my dad yeah <laughs> so unique super unique right and and what were the reasons for that i mean of course it makes a lot of sense if you think about it uh, filipinos especially like you know at the neo grads up grads they were they were hired because they could speak very good english right and and could actually communicate much stronger than indonesians could at that point and again you know there's a lot of connections between jakarta and manila that maybe a lot of people don't know about but there are people that worked for the lipo group for sinar mas for indo food and continue to have that kind of genesis in their bloods including myself my dad was sent to canada to start one of the sinar mas offices in canada and that's why i was born there and my dad did it for like so long okay he did it for so long that actually i was there until i was basically 16 years old oh sorry i wanted to ask so when you were growing up in canada mm. what were you interested in what were you doing yeah good question you know that generation of filipinos again there were so so few and far between that the the first set of filipino canadians that were there the, my my parents peers they just also happen to have daughters so i think it was it's interesting to note and and by the way i say this because i have three daughters now right but i actually grew up with girls um in other words i had a half sister she grew up with me in vancouver i i consider her a sister but she's 9 years older than me um so the people that were actually my age group that i grew up with that were my you know friends and still continue to be my friends were all girls and i you know i i make a point of that because i i feel like i got a very interesting perspective on life early that was not so heavily male dominated you know in in a variety of ways and that's not to say that like i didn't like a lot of guy things you know I, there was a lot of like sports in my life my dad loved sports so i'd watch you know a lot of vancouver canucks hockey for a short time the you know the vancouver even had its own nba team called the vancouver grizzlies so today of course they're known as the memphis grizzlies i don't know if anybody actually ever thinks about this but nobody ever wonders why Memphis has a team called the Grizzlies. It's not like there are grizzly bears in Memphis, Tennessee. I had never thought of that even though I've heard of the Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> exactly. And it's because there are grizzly bears in Vancouver, Canada. There's just not enough NBA fans. I would have thought they just ran out of animals, so they just thought let's go with the Grizzlies. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good too. But yeah, no, it, it, in the 90s there was actually a, a team the Vancouver Grizzlies. I was there for like 4 or 5 years. Um, so there was a lot of sports in my life. You know, my dad and I really bonded about 
over sports. There's a lot of video games in my life. So I, you know, I've had everything from Nintendo, you know, the first generation Nintendo to the first generation Sega, all of that stuff as well. And for the most part, if I wasn't hanging out with my school friends who were a good mix of, of guys and girls, I was hanging out with a lot of girls, right? I mean, like I, that's when I would do like my the Halloween, for example. This is exactly what you see in the movies, by the way. I would go trick-or-treating in the neighborhood, you know, like going out without my parents, getting dressed and trick-or-treating on, indoors. And that would be mostly with the friends that I had that were girls. So they would go as like, I don't know, like bunny rabbits and I would go as a ninja. <laughs> How do you think that shaped you, though? How do you think it shaped you having so many women around you throughout your childhood? While I think, you know, mostly in Western movies, it's always this gang of guys as friends. You know, I had quite the opposite. I like to think that I have increased sensitivity towards, you know, a variety of different things, right? That maybe I, I never would have gained had I not grown up with girls, right? And And I can't even name them, right? But I just imagine that there are things that that I was exposed to and viewpoints that I was exposed to as you know as I grew up with these girls. And and shout out by the way to, to JY and Katrina and, and and Patricia, all of these girls that I grew up with in Vancouver. Filipina American, uh, Filipina Canadians, by the way. They're all Filipina, all based in Canada. And I think just all the things that they were exposed to as they were growing up, huh? Because again, remember, you know, I was growing up with them until we were 16 years old. So I saw the first time they had their boyfriend. I heard about the challenges they had. I was the person that they would talk to about you know, these types of things. And, and I think it just gave me an increased sensitivity to, to a lot of different uh, perspectives. I think it's also just like an increased viewpoint for you. Because I feel like growing up in the Philippines, I attended like an all-girls grade school for years. Mm. And I realized how that sort of... I think as a girl, growing up around a lot of girls is a positive. But I think you still get stuck in a silo, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, growing up with both men and women around you and you as a guy growing up around other women, you still have like an increased viewpoint or more perspectives than you would have if you maybe grew up in the Philippines, mostly going to a boys' school, which is usually the path that people take here, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, it was that, you know, combined with the fact that I was, you know, I was experiencing, you know, the early part of my life as a, you know, first-generation child, right? Along with these girls, all of their parents had moved in the 70s and 80s from the Philippines to Canada. And, and we had that, right? We, so we had the fact that we were Filipino-Canadian. And then we had, you know, and then I personally had that increased sensitivity towards genders, let's say, you know, that kind of helped craft the way I see things today. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, there's a whole thing that I could go into about the perspectives of our parents about the Philippines versus my perspective today. Let's put it that way, right? That's true. So you have wow. the perspective of being the kid of immigrants and you have your own perspective being first gen yourself. You have mm -hmm. the perspective of growing up around a lot of women. And then after that, you move back to the Philippines and now you're open to a lot of new perspectives again. I think though that it's a very contrary thing to move back to the Philippines at 16, isn't it? What prompted the move? You know, the honest story there is that at 16 years old, which was my junior year of high school, at that point, I was going to an all-boys prep school in, in Vancouver um, called St. George's. I had already put, uh, in, in Canada, it's, th it's five years of high school, right? It's grade 8 to grade 12, and then you go off to college. So I had finished grade 8, grade 9, and grade 10 in Vancouver. I already had my friends there. 
And in grade 11, with only two years left in the summer of grade 11, with only two years left of high school, my parents basically decided to move back to the Philippines. Why? My dad actually got reassigned here. He was asked to set up the Sinarmas office in Manila after all those years in Canada. So actually, my parents gave me an option. Listen, you can stay in Vancouver and you can be a boarder here because I was going to a boarding school. Finish off your school and basically, you know, live your life in Canada, right? Nothing has to change except for the fact that my parents weren't there. Or you can try it in the Philippines for even just one semester and see how you enjoy it, right? Now, of course, at that point, I was leaning towards just staying. I mean, who in their right mind at 16 years old would want to try this brand new country that like I had only known from my holidays, right? So I only knew my cousins, right? And at that point, that just meant like staying within Ayala, Alabang, because that's where my cousins were. And you know what? It really came down to one phone call, one phone call. And that's what I always call my sliding doors moment. Sliding doors, by the way, is a reference to a movie from like like the early 2000s or maybe even late 90s that stars Gwyneth Paltrow, where basically it it follows two different paths of a woman Mm -hmm. who either chooses to go on one train on one side of the tracks or another train on the other side of the tracks. And it just kind of follows her tracks and sees how her life works out with taking these two different trains. And that's really my sliding doors moment because I get on that one phone call with the one guy that I know who turned out to be and still continues to be one of my best friends. The one guy that I know, Filipino-Canadian, that I had met at that school that I was going to, St. George's, that actually did go back to the Philippines the year before me and never went back to Vancouver, just like went straight to the international school where both you and I graduated from eventually. (laughs) And my parents were like, why don't you call him? See how it is. See how you, maybe he'll help change your mind. So I get on this call with this guy. And remember, there's like long distance. There's there's no Zoom back then. There's no WhatsApp voice or anything. I mean, it's literally long distance phone call, static in the background. He sounds like he's 10,000 miles away. (laughs) And he basically gets on a call with me. And we had to plan it over like, this is right at the advent of emails. Okay. So people were like just checking emails like once a month, I think at that point, some crazy. So you have to schedule things like wait a bit. So we finally schedule, I get on a call with the guy, his name is Sid. And he basically in, in a 30 minute conversation speaks so highly of his experience at the international school in the Philippines, how much he loves it, how much he never would consider actually going back to Vancouver that I was convinced. I was like, cool, I'll do it. You know, as long as you said, take care of me when I get back there, let's do this. Right. He's like, dude, I got to introduce you to all my friends. They're great. You know, they're, you know, super friendly. They'll totally take you in. The day you arrive in Manila, I'm going to take you out. And I'm like, I don't know what going out means at that point. Right? <laughs> like, What is that? Like, you know, in Vancouver, that means like hanging out in a corner store, right. Or going to a movie in the context of the Philippines, by the way, in the mid nineties, that actually meant going to like a bar or a club, which I had no idea at that. Point. And he goes, I'm going to take you out. So I say, okay, fine. I, you know, I put down the phone, tell my mom, tell my dad, okay, I'm going to try it out for one semester. And if, if I like it, then I like it. If I don't, then you guys are sending me back to Vancouver. And sure enough, you know, I arrive in, on, in this country. I get picked up literally within 24 hours by, by my friend Sid. He brings me around and introduces me to his friends. And I immediately fall in love with all those guys and girls, by the way. And I say, God, this is going to be great. And sure enough, they did. They took care of me when I went to ISM for my first day. They showed me around. And I almost immediately felt like I was very comfortable here. 
a little side note to that, Amanda, within the first 24 hours of me arriving here and those friends that were introduced to me by my buddy Sid, uh, one of those friends actually turned out to be Jesse Maxwell, who is, of course, now a partner at Foxbond with me. So he was one of those friends Sid introduced to you. He was one of those friends that Sid introduced me to. And another interesting side note to that, Jesse himself was actually on his way abroad. So he was on his way to the States about a month after I arrived in the Philippines. So in fact, I only met Jesse that for that one month and hung out with him for that one month. And then he and I just kind of grew our friendship over the subsequent years, his visits to the Philippines. And then eventually when I went off to college in the States, he just so happened to be relatively close by and we'd meet up in New York and yeah, the rest is history. Now it's a 25 year history with the guy. Fun to look back and see the random moments in your life that actually end up becoming something much longer than that one to two meeting thing or one month of friendship. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what did that teach me, right? That taught me that everything is worth a chance. Everything. I could have just stayed in Vancouver and been very comfortable. But just saying, okay, you know what? I'll try it for one semester. It literally changed the course of my life. And then the fact that you only met him for one month. I mean, you could have just stopped there and not contacted him and said like, yeah, he's going to go away, far away anyway. But it turns out to be a friendship that lasts years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's one of the things that I value a lot is relationships. And, and maybe that is one of the things that I try very hard to keep are the relationships that I have, right, on a personal level. You know, that surprises me because when like I graduated, a lot of my friends and my peers were telling me like, you know, I don't keep in contact with most of our close friends from, you know, high school. But meanwhile, you meet this guy for one month and then he goes off immediately. and You still keep in contact. Meanwhile, a lot of my friends and I, I think it's been three, three years since we graduated. A lot of people are not really in contact anymore. So I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a different time, right? For At the international school. But, but I do believe that ISM and probably most other international schools bring a bond like no other really, right? Because what is everybody at an international school but a third culture kid at that point? And really just trying to gain, create strong relationships in such a short period of time. And oftentimes they succeed, right? And, and back then, you know, we didn't have social media, we didn't have email. So you really tried to build strong enough connections that you could continue to keep in touch without thinking about because right now you're always like, eh, I'll just add you on Facebook or I'll add you on LinkedIn or I'll add you on Instagram or TikTok. And that's already keep, quote unquote, keeping in touch, right? Uh, reacting to a story or reacting to a reel or whatever it might be, right? But back then it was more about like, okay, I need to build this strong relationship so that when I write and write my letter to this person or spend a lot of money on a long distance call, like it's worth it, right? And maybe that's, maybe that's one thing I've brought with me from the old days, Amanda. <laughs> I think that's a good point, though. I feel like maybe because we grew up with a lot of technology, the fact that we know, okay, we can reach out to them sometime later because we have their number, their Facebook, their Instagram, whatever, then maybe that's why. But I think it's also a good lesson to learn from, from your journey to keeping intentional relationships with people and just not knowing what will come out of it, but just meeting people and continuing to reach out. I mean, there's the whole thesis I have around, like, and I'll go into that now, I guess, better than never, which is the reason why I actually don't post. I mean, I have my social media accounts. I have a Facebook account and I have an Instagram account, but I don't post on it, right? Or the reason why on my Facebook account specifically, 
I literally took about a day and a half and unfollowed every single one of my personal contacts, including my mom. I don't follow any of them. So I'm connected to everybody, but I'm not, I don't follow it. And my whole thesis around, so actually I, nowadays I use Facebook as my news feed, right? Which is probably bad for me. I'm probably being corrupted one way or the other. <laughs> However, whatever I'm liking on Facebook, actually I don't like anything on Facebook, but whatever I'm following, right? <laughs> but my whole thesis is that these passive kind of feeds that you see, the, the, the posts, the best of me type images or opinions or pictures, whatever it might be, it really, it doesn't actually strengthen a relationship. Probably is different like my mom or something, but it doesn't actually strengthen relationships. I actually like having meaningful connections, right? So I want to be able to like run into somebody by chance or meaningfully and actually ask them and actually mean it like what's been going on, <laughs> right? It's very simple. What did you do for Easter? Right? And then have them surprise me with their answer and me actually really say, wow, I didn't realize that. That's amazing. That's so cool. You know, what else did you learn about that? And to me, it's like a more of a meaningful connection. If you run into somebody by chance or by meaning, and you don't know what they just did during Easter, or you don't know what they did over the holidays. So the time that you're not spent connecting or not spent seeing their updates actually gives you more to talk about when you see them, maybe. Yeah. And then you don't have to like, I saw you guys were in, I don't know, Hong Kong Disneyland. And then what? I mean, like, and then what? I've already made my opinion on somebody. Oh, they're the Hong Kong Disneyland. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's yeah. better when you're face-to-face with somebody and you don't have a formed opinion yet. You just see people in a better light, I think. And you're not like, let's be honest. You get annoyed. I get annoyed. Everybody gets annoyed when you know somebody posts about their trip to the Maldives or whatever. And it's like a little bit of an eye roll. <laughs> a little bit of an eye roll. Like, ah, come on, can you stop chopping? And, and that's the honest truth, right? But it's very different when you hear about somebody telling you about their first time in the Maldives. It's very different. And to me, I want to be able to have that. I want to be able to have that moment all the time with all my friends or, or new people to hear it from them themselves and hear their perspective on their own experience uh, without seeing the, you know, quote unquote, best of greatest hits of trips of my trip to Maldives with the filters and the hash <laughs> Well, I guess I have a question too. Like when you were at ISM, when you were in high school, were you always this intentional about your relationships? Or do you think it was just a function of the times? No, it was just a function of the times. I could pretend that I was this deep and intentional when I was 16 (laughs) or 17 years old, but it was literally just a a function of the times, right? You know, a lot of of what happens these days um, and a lot of the way that I approach my life really comes from my, my days of traveling which happened way after high school, right? Um, it was my first job out of, out of college, or second job out of college, actually, theoretically. That's when I, I really had to kind of go internal and learn more about myself and learn about my actions and how it affects the world. And I think that's where I kind of picked that all up, right? You learn a lot when you're traveling alone. And I traveled alone for five years, so... <laughs> So, you know, you, you learn a lot about the world, a lot about yourself, and a lot about how your actions may affect others and how they perceive you. To backtrack a bit, I guess my question is, it's already a given that coming back to the Philippines shaped a lot about how you view the Philippines and how you view the future. But when you came to the end of your two years at ISM and you're ready to graduate, mm-hmm. what were your plans for your life? Were you ready to stay in the Philippines? After graduating from college, 
what were your hopes yeah. for your own future? You know, I was, I would say I was a little confused, right? Right when I finished college, I, sorry, right when I finished ISM, you know, I had two very amazing years at ISM. I felt seen, I felt accepted. You know, I felt that the school itself was very supportive and I was sad to leave ISM specifically. And I was sad to think about what could potentially be me leaving my parents even. And the Philippines, which at that point I had viewed you know, very positively, despite all the challenges of, of living here. So actually my first move, and, and this is also because my dad was very much an Ateneo guy. He was like, you know, he's basically second generation Ateneo. All his brothers went to Ateneo. He was there, you know, from grade school all the way to college. You know, I mean, he's just like true blue Ateneo. He, he kind of had a conversation with me about staying in the Philippines. Now, at that point, I had actually already applied and gotten into a bunch of universities in the U.S., including Syracuse, which I wound up going to. But, you know, that conversation with my dad, combined with the fact that, like, I just felt so welcomed at ISM in the Philippines that I actually took one semester in Ateneo. And that was because you're sold on the Philippines. You really liked it here. Yeah, I can safely say that by the time I was 18, which is two years after I moved here, despite the fact that and I still have very much a North American accent, despite the fact that I couldn't speak Tagalog, you know, despite the fact that really, if you think about it, if I went to ISM, it was like, it really wasn't the local experience. Despite all that stuff, I felt very welcomed in this country. So, so I, I actually did agree to my dad. I did agree to, again, try Ateneo for one semester and stayed, right? There was actually interesting to note, Amanda, you'd appreciate this because you went to ISM. And that year, ISM, of course, is very much known for graduating kids and, and then most of them leaving, like a lot of them leaving to go to the States or to, to Europe, wherever it may be, or wherever they're from. My year, I think something like 30 plus kids actually wound up going to Ateneo from ISM, which is a, a quite a high number. Yeah, that's way more, I think, than even the total who went to the Philippines from my year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think we just had a very good experience collectively and, and all decided, not necessarily by talking to each other, but just kind of knew that each other were going, all decided to go to, to Ateneo at the same time. Tell you what, though, I think only like 10 actually wound up graduating from Ateneo. And that's not a, that's not a, I'm not saying anything, that's not a testament to like Ateneo's academics or anything. I think Ateneo's academics are great. We, today, we hire many, many Ateneos. But I think it's more about how hard it was for us as ISMers, as international school kids, to actually really integrate into local school culture so soon after our graduation. I think we had to start Ateneo about one week after we had graduated um, ISM. So like there's no break after graduating. No, no senior break. trip. <laughs> no, no holiday I mean, no, yeah. even. <laughs> I think it was like we graduated. I think it was more like we graduated on like a Tuesday. And then I think we had a big, you know, grad party on like a Wednesday. And then we had a weekend to ourselves. And then the Monday after was already, you know, school. Far from ideal. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough, right? So, you know, it was going to a local school. It was having to make that much further commute. It was trying to understand how to get around. And, and you know, Ateneo itself was kind of quirky back then in the way that, you know, social groups were formed which was around benches, around the quad. Like literally you couldn't just sit in a bench. Um, that was like dangerous. If you just sat at a bench, um, you had to like kind of know somebody there. Um, so there was all these like intricacies of local college life that I think 
many of us had a hard time getting used to. And, and more for me, again, if you think about it, only 48 months, no, sorry, 24 months prior, I was literally a, a Vancouver you know, high school kid. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to have, I have to navigate, you know, an extremely local um, culture. And it was a shock. It actually was a shock. And subsequently, I actually only lasted, I really only did last one semester before heading out to Syracuse University. It was a learning experience. I still have a lot of, you know, friends from those times. Here's another interesting note. You know, one of those friends turned turned out to be a, a startup founder, right? By the name of Adi Guevara, who actually eventually Foxmon invested in as well. He's, he's one of the founders of Advance, the earned wage access business that uh, is now expanding to Vietnam. So, you know, I still kept some relationships there as well, you know, before moving out to good old Syracuse University. So how did you come to decide that it was time to like, okay, I love the Philippines, but I can't really study here. I'm going to Syracuse. What was on your mind then? I think one was that really I was struggling locally, just just trying to, I guess, integrate with the local culture and dealing with what I at that point saw as very challenging. I, maybe I just didn't understand why why I was being almost forced to study things that I didn't want to study, mm-hmm. you know, here in the Philippines. That's that's kind right. of the feeling I have. The curriculum is very different. I agree. Like even when you yeah. go to university, there's so many required classes and religion and Filipino and like random topics outside yeah. of your major versus if you studied in the US or even in the UK, you really Maybe you have electives and a few required courses, but the majority are related to your interests and your major. Meanwhile, the Philippines has this bulk of things in addition to everything you have to study. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit it right on the head, right? I, I remember thinking in, you know, in my one semester, I was thinking, like, why do I have to take this botany class? Botany. Okay, botany. <laughs> that one I was not expecting. <laughs> yeah. I was like, botany? Like, what am I going to do with a Botany, like you know, and they were it like, wasn't okay. even an elective you chose. It's just there. <laughs> it was just there. I mean, I, I think I could have chosen from like chemistry or botany, but it was some sort of. I think they were like it was chemistry, physics, or botany, and for some odd reason, chemistry and physics were like full, and I was <laughs> late to sign up, so I got botany. You know what I mean? I learned absolutely nothing from that class, and and then I think you know those types of questions, like why am I doing this, really kind of bubbled to the surface towards the end of that semester. Now, luckily, I, of course, I had already deferred my acceptance into another university, which was Syracuse. And I decided to take that deferral to January of 1999, uh, which is when I, you know, I had left Ateneo by December 1998, which was only six months after I graduated the international school. And then by January, I was on a plane to the Sonoya City in the USA. It's really difficult. I think growing up in Canada as a child of immigrants, and that was the place you're born and raised all your life. Then mm. two years at ISM, then suddenly you mm. go into the most local context. I think it's still really a lot of shifting because as mm. somebody who came from a local school, who even just transferred to an international school, I got culture shock. <laughs> <laughs> I got culture shock in my own country. <laughs> yeah. So I get you. <laughs> yeah. But- True. But how about Syracuse? I know that you study like international relations and all those things in university. So at the end of those four years, I know you worked in the U.S. Mm. What were your plans? Were you still hoping to go back to the Philippines since you love the Philippines Mm. so much? Actually, no. (laughs) Honestly, right? So why did I go to Syracuse? There are two reasons. One is that I actually had a, a decision to make between Boston University and Syracuse. And actually, if you break that down, 
One is a city school, literally is a campus inside a city, much like where you were going to go, Amanda, NYU. And the other one is a campus kind of outside, very, very far outside, right? And I actually chose a campus because I wanted to be kind of integrated into the community. I wanted to you know, experience East Coast campus life. So that was one reason. But the other reason was actually because Syracuse at that point, and I think still does, yeah, it still does, have one of the best communication schools in the world, right? It's called Newhouse. Um, and at that point, I really thought I was going to be a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist. So I actually wound up going to Syracuse because with the intent of starting with an English degree, okay, a literature degree, and transferring into a communications degree, because it's actually quite hard to get in, you know, if you're, you know, if you're applying from the beginning. So I thought I could transfer in. Um, and the idea really was that I was going to, you know, wind up staying in North America with a journalism degree. Um, but I'll tell you what happened. 2001, I was still a student at Syracuse University. I was supposed to graduate 2002. September 2001, I still only had one degree under me, which was actually still the English degree, right? It wasn't even the, the communications degree. And and I, I listed in, in LinkedIn these days as a literature degree, but the actual title was English and Textual Studies. That's actually the, the name of the degree. That no, comes out on of LinkedIn, it says International Relations and Literature. <laughs> yes. Yes. So in the beginning, it was really just a literature degree that I was, I was going after. Oh, and then okay. uh, September of 2001, I was on campus. Sorry, I was driving to campus September 11 of 2001. And I actually, let's put it this way. I experienced the planes hitting Twin Towers firsthand, right? Meaning to say that like the visceral experience of hearing the, on the radio, people talking about the planes hitting, you know, me going to class and then being pulled out of class to watch CNN as the second plane was hitting. People in on my campus, like like trying to reach their parents who worked on in the towers, right? People dropping to their knees and crying, trying to understand what just happened. That was 9-11 for me. I was not in Manhattan, but I was around Americans, all of whose lives were almost directly impacted by this event. And, you know, for the two weeks after that, you can imagine I, you know, I lived this relatively sheltered life in Vancouver, relatively sheltered life at ISM, relatively sheltered life in Ateneo. And, you know, three years, sorry, two and a half years into my experience in the U.S., there's this massively traumatic experience. And I spent basically two months with a bag by my door, packed, ready to drive up to Canada, just in case some crazy crap happened, even in Syracuse University, which was two, four and a half hours north of New York. Yeah, it's not that far. It's it's not, but it's also like, who the hell would target Syracuse University? You know, like, come okay, on. fair, Let's fair, fair. But I was still so freaked out that I was sleeping every night. At that point, I was living alone, not in the dorms, but in my own apartment. I was still sleeping every night with CNN on just to see what was going to happen. And let me and let me tell you, that really changed the course of my life again, because I wound up wanting to do something that felt that felt like it was making a change. Right. You know, journalism can make a change. It can. 
right? Just by you know writing exposés, you know, doing in-depth kind of you know long-form articles about people, about events. You know, journalism can change things, right? But oftentimes, it also can be like a third-party perspective on something, right? You can just write about an event that has already happened, and that's kind of how I felt at that point in time about journalism. And I wanted to do something more direct, so that's when I took up international relations and added that to 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 my degrees. I added a second degree, um, which was from the Maxwell School in Syracuse, which is also, uh, you know, considered to be one of the, the better colleges on campus. Um, with the intent of of going and moving to Washington D.C. and trying to do things that would actually directly affect policy, even policy. And that's what I wound up doing. I wound up actually graduating from from Syracuse a little bit late because I had to add the second degree. So I was done in in 2003, actually. But at that point, I was actually already living in Washington, D.C. I was doing almost like a semester in D.C. for Syracuse and getting credits, but also working as an initially as a paid intern and eventually as a full time employee for a think tank called the Woodrow Wilson Center in D.C. And honestly, at that point, 2002, 2003, I really believed that Washington, D.C. was going to be my home forever and that I was going to try to make some changes to the world from Washington, D.C. And actually, just a lot of different circumstances just led me to, you know, down a different path to where I am today. You clearly are not in Washington, D.C. now, unless everything has deceived me. But how did that experience get you to working at an international sales job for five years, starting GMI Post and bringing it back to the Philippines? Yeah. So Washington, D.C. ultimately didn't work out. And a lot of that was because I was Canadian and I was mm. honestly looking for jobs that were probably more appropriate for Americans or were <laughs> more appropriate for Americans, right? But uh, let me just tell you, towards the end of my time in Washington, D.C., I was like scrambling. Like I was literally going to, I was printing out CVs. Again, email was moderately used at this point, but not as much as it is now. I was printing out CVs and I was like dropping it off at front doors. I dropped it off at the Filipino embassy in Washington, D.C. Just like literally left it with the front desk. I dropped it off at the Canadian embassy in Washington, D.C. I dropped it off at all the different institutes, you know, for Philippine studies, Canadian studies, U.S. studies in Washington, D.C. And I just couldn't get anything. So eventually my visa ran out and I needed to do something. So I I'm actually moved to, I was forced to pack my car, which I did with two other ISM grads. Okay. Um, and one Canadian friend. So four of us. Okay, I packed all my life's belongings into this little tiny 1997 Civic, and I drove across the country from Washington, D.C. down to Jacksonville, Florida, across all of the southern U.S., so you know, through New Orleans, through uh, Houston, San Antonio, up through Las Vegas, San Francisco, and then up back to Vancouver. Um, and I wound up back in Vancouver for about six months. At this point, oh. This is an interesting part of my history, again, to the connections. I wound up working for Sid, the guy that introduced me to the Philippines. He had he was one of the guys in the car with me. I wound up working for his cousin for six months in Vancouver. On what? Very brief stint. <laughs> I was, at that point, I was the, there was only two of us. I was the marketing guy. and He was kind of like the ops and sales guy for a website called myphilippines.com. Oh, okay. Which, which was actually focused on OFWs and, you know, second generation Filipinos. And it was actually selling them like long distance cards to, for, for the Philippines. Yeah. I did that for about six months before, I guess it was actually more because I was really offered the second opportunity, which was at that point to be a traveling sales guy, 
right? So I came back to Manila for the holidays to see my parents. Um, at that point, my mom said, hey, you know, you should really talk to this lady. She runs a business that basically hires young Filipinos that have foreign passports to travel around the world and sell advertising. So I, And that's what you did. Yeah. So I took this job. I mean, I took the interview and eventually got the job and actually wound up, well, I didn't know this. I thought it was just going to be like a year, but I wound up doing it for five years. I just loved it. I loved it so much that I couldn't stop. And and I did it between the ages of 20, I want to say 24 to 29. And it brought me to, you know, this all expenses paid traveling job that brought me to 15 different countries in, in that specific job over those five years. So three different countries per year, only repeating, never repeating a country. I literally did 15 wow. different countries. And most of the yeah. time, this was a new country to you, right? Like it's not a country to ever visited before, know much about, right? Almost 100% of the time, right? At that point, I had traveled maybe a couple of times with my parents over the summers to Europe, uh, to the US, but certainly never to places that I wound up in in this job. I mean, what can I say, right? Highlights would be places like Sao Paulo, Brazil, you know, Stockholm, Sweden, Helsinki, Finland, Brussels, Belgium, Cairo, Egypt. I mean, these were places that where I was basically airdropped into, to use a, low, a new term, airdropped into <laughs> for three and a half months at a time, oftentimes with brand new colleagues that I had never worked with previously. So it was cool. It was, I would say that I've had many formative times in my life, but those five years traveling around the world, I think I put it in, in the, the interview that I had with you previously. I mean, I, I call that my personal MBA, yes, honestly. Just about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I learned more there. Yeah. And again, you opened up to more perspectives in your life. I think that's a really common theme that you have. And you did that for another company. And then you built your own company that did the same thing, right? That's right. Which still exists today. It's called Global Media. And, and that company does exactly that. We have relationships with, you know, media, large media properties all over the world. You know, I, I really was part of the founding team of that. And I, I helped manage and run that for the first, say, five years before basically giving up the reins to my partner, who continues to be my partner today. I, I'm just sitting as a non-executive director. Yeah. Now that's, gosh, 14 or 15 years old now at this point, which is like almost as old as you are, Amanda. So, yes, almost. Yeah. You graduated from yeah. university the same year I was born. <laughs> Damn. You know what I love about venture capital? Yes, it keeps me young, me. Amanda. Keeps me young. So that well, so that, I would not uh, have guessed your age. Like I thought well, you were younger than your actual age. So I hope that helps. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. And in between working on global media, you actually were the first. Were you the first hired grab as the general manager of the Philippines? I was basically right. I was the, the first GM of, of the Philippines. And again, going back to kind of keeping those connections, keeping those relationships, it was actually Jesse Maxwell that, that called me and asked me about that. So that guy that I met in that one month in 1996. When you were 16. Um, I, <laughs> when I was 16 years old and I kept in touch with throughout college and I kept in touch with throughout you know all my work, eventually moved back to the Philippines I moved back in 2008 to start Global Media. He moved back in 2000 and I want to say late 2011, early 2012. And I guess I was one of the first phone calls he made and got back because his buddy from HBS 
Anthony Tan decided that he wanted to expand to the Philippines and asked Anthony, uh, sorry, asked Jesse for a recommendation of somebody that in the Philippines that had experience in building businesses. And, and at that point, Jesse thought about it. And, and I guess because of my experience building global media, and I will assume the trustworthiness that I bring with that, <laughs> <laughs> Jesse asked me to consider helping him build out a business that he explained as hailing a taxi with your phone. And I was like, dude, isn't that what you already do? Don't you just already call for taxis with your phone? And he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. You got to meet with this guy, Anthony, and he'll explain it better than me. And I was like, okay. And yeah, so I wound up meeting with Anthony and learning more about my taxi back then. And eventually, again, becoming amongst the first employees of, of Grab in, in the Philippines. I was probably like employee number, I don't know, the number changes in my head. It, sometimes I say six, sometimes I say eight. It's definitely less than like, 10. Less than 10, I think. But it's definitely like driver number one. In, in Grab Philippines. Like literally, if you were to check, I think the system today, which I don't have access to anymore, but if you were to check the Grab system today, you will see that the first driver registered was actually me. Crazy. So yeah. Now, of course, I, I built that, you know, not alone, um, obviously with the support of Anthony Tan and, and Jesse, of course, but I think equally as important would be Brian Koo, who is famously Mr. Grab these days. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, a much more appropriate fit for grab to run grab in and the stage that he did than I ever would have been, honestly. And then of course Natasha Bautista, who today is at 917 Ventures, but really in, in many ways helped me in so many ways build that first generation of grab as well. So that was kind of the five. So that ended in 2014, but he actually started Foxmont in 2018. That's a four-year gap after being involved, mm. I guess, into the Philippine startup ecosystem for the first time. So how mm. did Foxmont actually come about? Yeah, listen, so I left Grab, yeah, 2014-ish. And let me tell you, I mean, I, I really tried to build a variety of other businesses. And I really tried to help a variety of other businesses, all of which, you know, were basically startups, right? So a lot of people won't know this, but, but Brian Ku and I, uh, we tried to build a business called Propster together, which was a you know, property management business. This is while Brian was basically still running Grab. And I was, yeah, just trying to do a bunch of other things. So we did, well, at first I think it was called Propster and then now, and then it was called Propsy. So we tried to build that business, right? And then Brian and I teamed up with a few other friends, let's say, and we tried to start another business called AdRover, which was actually screens inside taxis to serve ads, so like OOH style, which of course, subsequently, there was another business that came up called AdMob. I don't know if you heard about that one. That was a startup you know, pre-pandemic that was actually doing quite well. But again, relatively easy to get commercial contracts, but really needed a lot of capital to, to be raised to, to be able to scale, right? And then I, you know, I helped out a company called QuadX, right? Which is a logistics company or as they call it, a digistics company, digital logistics company. And I helped them build out their whole you know, writer partner program as well. Now, one common theme amongst all of those, plus all the others that I tried to help out or did help out um, all over those years, one common theme that came out of it, be it my own business or somebody else's, was that it was extremely hard to raise money in the Philippines, right? It was hard to like go to like the regional funds, 
or it was hard to even even speak to local funders. I mean, who would you who would you look for, right? Who would you talk to back then and raise money? And and honestly, that's kind of the fr- the frustration of that was kind of what led to kind of the beginning of the idea of Foxmont, right? I always thought, God damn, like why can't somebody just do it themselves, right? Like why can't is one hundred? I mean, let's let's be honest, right? Like for one second, let's be real, right? Like back then, pre twenty eighteen, pre Foxmont. You know, if you wanted to raise domestically, you were only going to go to one fund and that was going to be Kickstarter. Yeah. But did 100% of all founders go to Kickstarter? I mean, how hard is it for Kickstarter itself, right? To be able to effectively filter and invest, right? I mean, they must have had an extremely difficult time being the only player. And then kudos, by the way, to the team over at Kickstarter for really being the pioneers, of venture capital in this country um, and for really kind of setting the seeds for, for what it is today. Right. But I can imagine sitting in, you know, Minette's seat and being, and seeing like, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of pitches per month, per year coming in and being like, how the hell am I going to cover all of this? You know? And at that point, what was that? Like a $20 million fund or a $50 million fund? It's no way. And, you know, sitting from, from the side of the founder, what is the level of where do you go if you can't go to Kickstart? You know, how much hope do you put into Kickstart knowing that there's 99 others that are pitching them at exactly the same time? And then, you know, let alone talk to the regional funds, none of whom at that point had any conviction for the Philippines, right? I mean, they were all very, let's say, focused on their investments program, which I'm sure at that point was mostly focused around Indonesia. You know, how do you get their attention? And then most of the funds that I spoke to on behalf of other founders or for my own businesses, you know, a lot of the feedback we got back then was too early. Philippines not ready. And at what point are you like, dude, when do you think the Philippines is going to be ready? You know, so at what point do you say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take this into my own hand. And honestly, that's what we did, right? I got into those four years. I would say I was in a lot of different things. I was doing a lot of different things. And and many people will know me for doing a lot of different things in those times from like, I swear, it's like, it's kind of crazy. It's like logistics, crypto, right? I mean, it was crypto just everywhere. in those already, times. Wow. I was okay. everywhere. <laughs> I, was, I was everywhere about it. And I was getting into as many conversations as I could to try to, to try to see how I could work with people. And one conversation that I got into was with my partner today, Mark uh, Quimman, about what we could do together, right? And, and what became very obvious is that he had a lot of fund management experience, having run a private equity firm in China previously. And I had, at the very least, something to offer, which was origination or the, the ability to find businesses that did need money, you know, startups that did need money to raise. And that's when we started talking in the lobby of the Fairmont Hotel, by the way, which is why we're called Foxmont, around a fund. Yeah. And, and that's basically it. Right. And, and again, you, you've heard me say, I think you've heard me say this before. Others have. This is when I started learning that actually the, the Philippines will reward you if you identify a problem or a, an underserved segment and you do something about it. Right. That's what Foxmont was. It was literally Mark and I identifying that there was a big gap here that nobody was funding things startups, great founders, great businesses, you know, large town. Who else was going to do it if not us? And Kickstarter, but also us. 
you know, in 2018 and even before that, right, I'm sure the ecosystem was pretty much nothing. Like every, as everyone said, it's too early. But I guess the problem with that is like, if it's too early, how are you expecting it to get ready if no one's going to fund anything? Nobody would want to be a founder. Nothing would get mature enough for people to call it the Philippines, not an early ecosystem. So how are people even expecting the problem to be solved, right? Just like one fund funding it all, people getting loans to fund their own businesses. How would you see the Philippine startup ecosystem even grow <laughs> if that was the exactly. status quo? <laughs> you know, what are we all going to just sit here and twiddle our thumbs until we're all very old? And then like, <laughs> oh, yeah, now it's ready. Do you know what I mean? Are we going to wait until like every Filipino is making as much as, I don't know, an American? Like, you know, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. And, and that was one of the things that I was trying to really understand, right, about the development of Indonesia. And now I know a lot of people have heard me talk about this, but it was the comparison between Indonesia and the Philippines. And why? Why was Indonesia able to develop so much earlier than the Philippines, right? And it really did. At the end of the day, when you look at it, apples to apples, timeline to timeline, it really did come down to the fact that there was an independent early stage venture capital firm that was founded in Indonesia 10 years before the Philippines. Because that's what, you know, people will always ask me, what does independent venture capital means? And independent just means that we're not linked 100% to a conglomerate, right? We, by most perceptions, will be pretty unbiased in the way that we invest. We will invest financially, right? We will just invest in the best way we can to make the best returns we can. But ultimately, what that also means is that um, an independent venture capital firm can be that first you know, layer or filter, right? It's like a startup sommelier, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like somebody that, that can you know, honestly speak to the regional funds and say, hey, listen, you know, like, this is what's going on on the ground, right? These are the founders that are, that are building something real. These are the cap tables that make sense, right? These are the investors, angel investors, RLPs, my LPs. These are the types of investors that this founder has in his, his company. So yeah, that's basically why in 2018, we believed that it was necessary to start our own independent venture capital. There was really a plan about it. And it was really this, that there was going to be a need for it. And it was going to be a catalyst for something. <laughs> Thankfully, it was a catalyst for good things. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> I think what I find interesting is that it's not just capital flowing to founders for their first check or just capital flowing to founders, period. Because I feel like in, in Thailand, you have capital flowing into the market, but the ecosystem hasn't grown that big. Maybe it's because it's all or mostly from conglomerates, right? And then at the same time, I feel like beyond yeah. that, you also need an independent fund that is only investing in the Philippines so that you can actually be transparent about what's going on. You're advocating oh. for investments going in, but you're also, you got your eyes open and see what's real in the market at the same time. And I guess that's what the Philippines lacked at the time, right? Because Kickstart was connected to a corporate VC. At the same time, it's only one fund and there was no other local investor. Yeah. I mean, there's the Kickstart has been great. Uh, for the ecosystem and and they continue to be right they continue to be very supportive we co-invest with them all the time and you know we we support the same many of the same founders right but you're right there is something to be said about that independence right one is again what i was talking about is this the ability to speak to other funds internationally that you know maybe 
we don't have, you know, our mandate is very different. So we can speak very frankly about the ecosystem. But the other, and I think the, this is something that's not mentioned so much, the other value that the independent fund brings is actually the LPs that we bring with us, right? I mean, oftentimes people will kind of look at me or even Foxmon or anybody that works with Foxmon as like kind of like the face of the money, I guess. But ultimately, what are we but just a, a pocket, a vehicle for a lot of other investors to understand the Philippines, right? And to bring value to the Philippines, right? Now, when I say that, most people will think about who we've announced as our LPs, right? You know, of which we have four international institutional LPs already that kind of validate the Philippines on their own because they're international and they're showing that they believe in it. But I think the other part that a lot of people just don't mention or maybe don't think about is actually the 40 plus LPs that we have that are Filipino, right? That that do run their own businesses, that are multi-generational, that that have a lot of you know value that they can bring to the ecosystem, but just simply at this point don't understand it well enough. And you know, besides the international funds using Foxmon as a guide to the startups, one can also imagine that our local LPs are also using Foxmont as a guide to understand the Philippine startups. I mean, I think right now, my LPs, uh, although they're probably pretty quiet, are probably just taking their time to understand it a little bit better, right? You know, many of them did tell me, like, frankly, this is the first time we're investing in a fund or we're investing in a, in a VC fund at the very least, and we just want to understand the startup ecosystem. And oftentimes, my answer to that would be like, hey, listen, you know, like, that's awesome. Please let us be your guide, obviously. But also, like, we'd love for you to be able to participate, to bring more value, to join our expert panel, um, of which, you know, our, our head of community, Bea, uh, has, has started working on, to invest yourself in some of our startups, of which has happened multiple times now, to get into commercial agreements with some of the startups that you're invested in, just so you can help them along. And that's actually, thankfully, you know, two, one and a half years on from our first close of Fund 2, we're seeing a lot of that happening now. A lot of that, which is super cool. When I was growing up, one of my big goals was always to be an entrepreneur. And I feel like the reason for that was growing up in the Philippines. I felt like the way to create value, especially in a country like this, a developing country, was to start a business. And I feel mm. like as a VC you're not just putting money into startups to uplift the startup ecosystem, but you're also helping the Philippines actually grow by attracting investments, by helping fund things that hopefully provide real value. And do you think that oh. you're able to do that? Yeah. Honestly, Amanda, I told you I started my life journey kind of thinking about how I could make a direct impact on the world. Now, of course, back then, I thought it was going to be about stopping terrorism. <laughs> From DC. From DC. But, you know, through my life experiences and through where I wound up, I actually know that this is where I belong. And this is the impact in which I'm, I'm putting on this world. And it is, you know, you're right. It's not just that that initial investment that we make as Foxmont, but it is what happens subsequently as well, right? You know, them, these founders, having their business validated, you know, doubling down on the country, putting more money in, putting more resources, hiring more people. Right, raising more capital that then subsequently goes back into the Philippines, you know, paying more taxes to the government so that the government can lay out nice roads for us. Which, by the way, just as a side note, over the Easter weekend, I drove down to Calatagan, Batangas, right? Not too far away from here. Shocked, shocked at how beautiful the roads have turned out 
in that part in Batangas. It's like night and day from the last time I was down there, right? It went from two lanes to four lanes, freshly paved, beautiful, no potholes really. It was the first time I was like, hey, tax dollars at work in the Philippines, <laughs> all right. But anyway, I, I use that example as a point because you know a lot of people will talk about the Philippines and they'll talk about the not so great things about it, right? You know, how difficult it is to do business here, how, where exactly your tax dollars are going. You know, things like that are brought up consistently, right? When we talk about international investors. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm seeing the change. We are seeing and experiencing these changes happening to our lives, right? By the services that are brought to us by these startups, by the fact that they are in hiring people, you know, relatives or the, and I'm saying they, meaning startups in general, they're hiring people within our immediate circles that are exposed to a totally different industry that are learning and will eventually subsequently contribute again, right? By finding their own business, by becoming more senior and, and, and hiring more people for their teams, right? There's all of this like generative, to use a term that's always used these days, there's all these generative outcomes, right? And all it takes is us making that first initial investment into a startup. And it's world-changing. A lot of people will will think about venture capital and they'll think about it in the context of Silicon Valley and, and always looking for like that great new idea that will change the world for the better, right? This is like, again, Chad GPT, or it's like, I don't know, Tesla or Facebook or whatever, change, you know, change the a process or change the way that people look at the world, right? Maybe not for the better, but it'll definitely change the way that people look at the world in some of the examples I just gave. But in the context of a developing country like the Philippines, venture capital takes on a very different form. And yes, I like to say that you can imagine it to be like FDI, right? Like a foreign direct investment. It does change our lives, right? We are getting, thanks to Edamama, we're all getting diapers. Well, maybe not you, but I am. You know, getting diapers in our home much easier than me going to the mall and you know burning gas, paying for parking, all that stuff, right? You know, I can I can plan that stuff better, right? SMEs can get their goods to the end client faster through LOCAD, right? You know, there's just thousands of live streamers, thousands of them are generating income that they would have never been able to generate previously through Kumu. You got to mention advance. I feel like that I came across a while back. And I think like the concept of just having some credit line, emergency credit line that would give you money instantly anytime that maybe you ran into emergency, maybe you're, you forgot you had to pay your kid's tuition fee. You got into an accident, you have to go to the hospital. You can actually access credit, access emergency money that goes direct to your bank account just because your employer uses advance. And for a lot of Filipinos, they work, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And so exactly. this is like life changing for them because they can't afford the medical treatment or they don't have to go to a loan chart or they don't have to go to the embarrassment of having to borrow money from their relatives. Exactly. And advance very specifically. I mean, you're right. I should always mention them because they have, I mean, literally their numbers are like astounding, right? I mean, it's like 30,000 employees now have the ability to do that. 30,000 now can buy things in advance using the advanced system, you know, on a monthly basis. And that's, again, life 
changing stuff, right? So in my opinion, you know, early stage startup investing, EVC, in the context of the Philippines, changes not only the lives directly of the founders that we invest in, but actually of even yours and mine and my mom's, my wife's, you know, my children's lives. And for that, by the way, I sleep better at night. I sleep very well at night. But people ask me, like, how do you sleep? I sleep pretty well because that's what we do, right? Did you know, I'll just give you one point, Amanda, sorry. Did you know that if we actually kind of tracked startup, early stage startup investing as a percentage of FDI between 2020 and 20, sorry, 2019 and 2021, you know, I think it was less than 1% in, in 2019. And today, and, and sorry, in 2021, it was like 12%, right? That money, that 12%, right? Which I think, you know, obviously equates to about a billion dollars does so much that a lot of people don't understand and don't see immediately, but, but it changes our lives, right? I mean, just the, just the fact that, you know, all of us are using GCAST these days. I think it's right? so real. Like early stage investing in Southeast Asia and startups in Southeast Asia is so fascinating for me because they don't just uplift, let's say, the local Philippine ecosystem for startups. They also help people's individual lives. They help their children's lives and they even help the country grow versus like, you know, investing in the US. How much are your VCs investments going to help the nation grow? And how will it be felt by individual people? Will it be seen in like the, the country's metrics versus here in Southeast Asia, especially in the Philippines, it's actually seen. And even for me, like if I didn't get a, an internship at a startup when I graduated from high school, I wouldn't even be here. <laughs> right. No, I mean, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. We feel it more intensely in a place like the Philippines. And, and again, you know, Foxmond itself, we've only, sorry, not only, but we have invested probably in the range of like, I want to call it, 14 to 15 million dollars so far in total between our two funds um, across you know 35 let's call it portfolio companies and to me you know what if we didn't exist yeah let's let's imagine that for one second what if foxmont ceased to exist or just never existed you know what then like how far along would would we be as an ecosystem right take away the fact that I'm the managing partner and founder and obviously biased <laughs> you know of, of foxmont Take away the fact that that's the case. Where would our ecosystem be if it wasn't Foxmont being that first ticket in for many of the businesses? Now, I'm not going to claim that we are the first for all the businesses, and, and in fact, that's probably not the case for you know a good chunk of our our startups. But there are many of them where we have been the first ticket in, or we continue to be the only ticket in, and we support them in so many other ways. Right now, ask me and like. Ask us, look at Foxmont in our portfolios in 10 years and tell me again, you know, like again, sliding doors moment, right? Where would these startups be if, if, if it wasn't like us in, in, you know, investing across the ecosystem? I don't know. And I think people don't even know that as an independent VC firm focused on the Philippines, how much work you actually put in to talk to people in the government, to talk to people at regional funds, U.S. funds even other entrepreneurs about the Philippines. And I feel like that's such a crucial role you play because founders mm. don't have the time to convince governments, to convince other VC funds that the Philippines is a good place. You actually lift that off their shoulders. Other independent VC funds lift that off the shoulders for you know other founders in their respective countries. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you know, thank you for bringing that to light. In my, a lot of my personal time, the, sorry, not personal, but a lot of my work time these days is really put towards that, right? Is really put towards meeting with international funds and, you know, literally 
talking to them about either the ecosystem as a whole or very specific companies that they want to look into. It is talking to the government, to pretty high levels of the government and making them understand all the positive outcomes of, of startup investing. And I guess that's the best use of my skill set, right? Again, if you think about my my academics, you know, I, I I took up international relations. What does international relations ultimately mean? It means diplomacy, right? And then and sales, exactly. And then there's the sales part where I was basically speaking to a lot of different cultures, right? So you know, I, I do see myself oftentimes as you know as a, an ambassador, really an ambassador to the startup ecosystem. You know, one thing that's interesting about ambassadors, Amanda, is that we don't, ambassadors in general, sorry, not we, but ambassadors in general. If you think about ambassadors, they don't have opinion. They have to, they are just representatives of the countries that they come from, right? But they cannot have a political opinion. That's not the point of being an ambassador. The the point of being an ambassador is to speak for an entire nation, right? One singular voice for an entire nation in a different country. In the case of you know startups and what I do these days with you know the local government, with foreign governments, and with foreign funds is, you know I do try to speak for the entire ecosystem, right? It's not that, you know I I try to speak for like one sec- small section of it, which is our portfolio, which of course I do a lot, but I do try to speak as fair as I can about everybody that plays within the startup ecosystem in the Philippines. I feel like we need to have another conversation again sometime. But I think for this time around, I have to wrap up and ask you the question I ask everybody that I speak with for the podcast, which is outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? This doesn't have to be something achieved this month, this year, even in the next five years. But what comes top of mind? Yeah, I guess that's easy to, to raise three great daughters. That's it. And what does that look like for you? For them to be great people, good people, good, caring people, for them to be comfortable in life and to have choices in their life, right? To If they want to choose to, I don't know, join Foxmont, they can do that. They want to choose to join the, my watch shop, Vintage Grill, they can do that, right? Or if they want to choose to go off into the world and experience life the way, the way they want to experience it, they can choose to do that, that they have the options. So, so yeah. It's, it's really focused around my daughters. Well, that's it for me. Thank you so much, Franco, for joining me today. It was just awesome. I'm sure everyone who listens would say the same. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. And thank you to all your listeners. Listening to my super long stories that, yeah, I don't know if it makes sense to anybody, but it made sense in my head. So thank you. <laughs>